Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Genesis ends as a book um, with a picture and a word. And I'm grossly oversimplifying, um, but I think it's pretty fair to say it does end with a unique picture and a, a unique word spoken. And uh, we don't get all that, just like we didn't have all the time to study uh, all the intricacies of the humbling part of Joseph's journey. We don't have all the time to study the intricacies of his exaltation moment and the tension that, that happens. And uh, just as he was tested, he kind of tests his brothers leading up to the time that he reveals himself, and it's really beautiful. But taking a 30,000-foot a view... We have a picture in the wor- uh, in a word. The picture is a feast. The picture is of a feast. And we get two glimpses of a feast. Uh, there's two different types of feasts that happen in these last chapters of Genesis. One of them is a feast of brothers and of reconciliation. So look at your front cover with me. This is Joseph dining with his brothers. I already mentioned this, but... Um, this is a Jewish painter, and I love his take on Old Testament scenes. Um, but if you remember in the story, the, uh, the Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrews because Hebrews are abomination, so they have to be separate. So that's why you get these different tables uh, in this picture. But uh, you get this picture where Joseph is eating with his brothers at the end of Genesis, and he is choosing not to punish them or find retribution against them, extremely similar to Esau and Jacob. Uh, and you remember he, he loves Benjamin, who's the same brother from the same mother, uh, and he's heaping on double portions on Benjamin's plate, uh, and the, it's kind of a hook, Rufio feast moment uh, with these 12 brothers. And again, just to process how shocking that picture is, that Genesis decides to end with a picture of reconciliation and extreme forgiveness. Um, but this is the family getting back together again. This is a picture of unity. Um, it is a picture of something that probably people in their wildest dreams never thought would come true has come true, that these brothers are reconciled to one another. Just like Jacob and Esau in the, the hot tears of the gospel, these are hot tears. Um, I mean, Joseph can't stop crying literally for like the last six chapters of this book. Notice that at the end, they say what we're going to talk about in a second, what Jacob read, where they're like, oh gosh, our dad just died. Now Joseph is really going to get back to us. And they say, hey, please don't hurt us. You promise not to hurt us. And what does Joseph do? He just starts crying. He weeps. It's amazing. So it's a feast of brothers. Second, it's a feast of nations in the end of Genesis. Through Joseph, through divine providence, because why does Joseph know to stockpile resources in the seven years of feast? Because he has a dream, right? So through God's wisdom, through God's providence, Egypt has all this food. And people stream to Egypt to be fed, including the Israelites. Um, But all the nations are coming, and it's a picture of people being sustained through the wisdom of God. 
It's not about Joseph's craftiness. Genesis is not about Joseph. The Joseph cycle is not about how awesome Joseph is, even though there are many moments in Joseph's life that we would want to emulate. God is the one who told Joseph what to do. And through God's wisdom and providence, the nations are eating. And this is a symbol, if, if the first feast of brothers is a symbol of reconciliation and forgiveness, this is a symbol of provision in the midst of famine. This is like Jesus seeing all the people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd who are hungry. And God has made a way to provide. And remember, a part of the curse is uh, thorns and thistles in the ground. So it's almost this is a, a practical application of all these promises in, Je- in Genesis are being sh- you have a picture of what it looks like for God to bless the world through a person he has blessed. And I know I've rammed that point home a lot. But man, as Joseph is sitting in all these barns of grain and food, and people are coming to eat, it's like this is what it looks like for a blessed person to be a blessing. Notice also that you see kind of the themes of royal rule coming from the family of Abraham kind of blossoming a little bit at this moment. You see this picture uh, of a son of Abraham who is ruling graciously and providing. And this is what Joseph was exalted to do. He wasn't exalted to be awesome by himself. He was exalted to bless people, to provide for hungry people. And yes, he was exalted to forgive and be a force of reconciliation in his family. That is why God led him through this process. So that's the picture you get. That's how Genesis ends. Don't you just love that? That's where this book goes. It's amazing. I don't know if it had these colors, but man, I wish it did. I wish it was this psychedelic. Okay, the word... Open up to Genesis 50, if you didn't already, when Jacob read that in your Bible. This is one of those stories that is really hard to take out of, like, cross-stitch American Lifeway Christianity world. It's really hard, but you have got to try to shake yourself out of hearing this all the time and maybe hearing it in trite ways and realize how insane of an ending to this book this is. It's like the, you know, Daniel and his friends, Abrak, Meshach, and Abednego or whatever, like veggie tales and everything. But that story is hardcore, and it is like one of the greatest in the Bible. So we got to make sure that we don't assume we know what's going on here. Y'all, this is how Genesis ends. Let's just read verses 19 to 21 again. Are you guys there? So his brothers are, f- are worried that now that the covering of dad is gone, Joseph, Joseph is finally going to flip on them and be like, okay, now that Jacob's out of the picture, you guys are toast. They're afraid of him. They reach out to him, say, please forgive us. Remember, you promised not to hurt us. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is Joseph showing that he understands that in the midst of all his betrayal, through his humiliation, through his humbling, God was working to accomplish what he had originally proclaimed at the beginning. 
the product of Joseph's suffering was life for others. And this shows that Joseph is at this amazing moment where he's looking back and he can see, I didn't understand what that dream meant all those years ago, but I do now. And it's happened. So he understands the proclamation bit of it. There were clear parts about it. There were unclear parts about it. He can see that it's come true. It's also him looking back at this middle bit and seeing what God was doing in him and what God was doing for the world. He understands it. What a moment. And I have to think that for us, uh, for the things that we've been thinking about, whether it's in your own life or it's in our church, a part of our sanctification, a part of the consummation of all things, there's just going to be a moment where between us and the Lord, we see that what God spoke has come true. And we go, oh my gosh, that dream really did happen. And there's going to be a point where you look back at all the sideways parts of your story where it looked like you were down and up and down and up and down and up and you were able to say what Joseph's able to say. We have to be careful that this isn't trite or used in a bad way, but it is what Genesis is trying to come across. This is the word that Genesis decides to cap off its story. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And actually, more than it just being a word from Joseph, I think it's Genesis finally showing its hand a little bit. Um, Genesis doesn't comment a lot on stuff that happens, and I really appreciate that. So we talked about with Jacob and Esau and all these crazy stories, you don't get a lot of sermonizing in the book itself. So you don't have these stops where the author's like, hey, by the way, here's what you should take from this. Be like Jacob, don't be like Esau, be like Esau, don't be like Jacob. Like, we just never get that. It just tells the story. Um, and yet here, I think like that moment in John where John's like, by the way, I'm writing this so that you'll believe. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> it's kind of like a director's cut where you hear the director say, yeah, in this scene, here's what we were really trying to accomplish. I think if there's any part of Genesis that explains Genesis, it is this verse. Joseph at the end of his life saying, what was meant for evil, God meant for good so that many people could be alive as they are today. So what does this teach us about all of Genesis? In spite of the craftiness of the serpent, think about our last two summers, and we did not plumb the depths of Genesis, but we certainly skimmed across it. In spite of the craftiness of the serpent, in spite of the rebellion of of Adam and Eve, despite all of the massive dysfunction and repeated just, wow, you really blew that at this moment, X, Y, or Z person in every generation, despite all the dysfunction that absolutely matches the dysfunction in our own families, despite the sin of Sodom, despite the divisions between men and women, God was working. He was weaving his providence to secure blessing and to spread blessing. Amen? I mean, that is what Genesis teaches us. And it's so encouraging because our life is sideways. (laughs) At least it feels like that a lot. God's providence works to secure his promises. Genesis can be really weird. It can be really scary sometimes. Um, Sometimes it seems like I have friends who, you know, become Christians or get interested in Christianity and the, the, 
logical thing to do is start at the beginning. And so for a lot of people who are new to Christianity, they just open up a Bible and they start reading. And by the time they get to, you know, what pick a story, they're like, oh, this is weird. I'm not sure about this. Uh, and so it's kind of hard to get through Genesis if, you, if you're just starting from nothing. But isn't it amazing that this is what Genesis is doing? This is what it's about. And if that's the case, aren't you excited to study Exodus? Leviticus is just as good as this, I promise. It's scary at first. We're going to do it in two summers. We're going to spend a summer in Leviticus. And the Leviticus is so full of the gospel, it is, it's hard to fathom. You have to put your book down sometimes because you're so shocked at what God is accomplishing for the people that he loves. True story. Get excited. But man, it's amazing that it ends with this. Forgiveness, kindness, a person weeping because somebody is scared of them that they're going to hurt him back. He's like, no. It's like Esau saying, brother, I have more than enough. You keep all your gifts for yourself. And just as the proclamation and humiliation phases of Joseph, Joseph's life were patterns that we've seen in other parts of Scripture, remember this is a God story, the final picture of exaltation that we see here reaches beyond Genesis, right? This is a picture It's a glimpse of resurrection. Jesus' life is that, right? We just sang, Jesus, Jesus, risen and exalted one. He is the one who was raised from the pit, from his descent, from his false betrayal to be the ruler over nations so the people could eat. Amen? Amen. And at the end of Jesus' life, on the night before he dies, what does he do? He throws a feast. And who does he invite? Twelve dudes. Yeah. The twelve people who are eating at this table with Joseph at this moment are the, the brothers in Israel, right? And they would become the heads of the, the fountainheads of the twelve tribes of the people of Israel, the kingdom of priests the blessed people to be a blessing. And Jesus finishes his life and he breaks bread with 12 apostles who had become the fountainhead of the church. And the church would go on to be the people who are the blessed people, who are the vehicle for the blessing to be spread throughout the world. So both Israel in the Old Testament and the church after Christ are this picture of the blessed people who are called to be a blessing, and where's my bulletin? That means the Last Supper is a lot like this in Jesus' life. This is what it is. And the thing that Joseph is doing at that table is he's reversing this circle of violence, and he's starting another cycle of blessing that he's about to spread. And is that not exactly what Jesus is doing when he washes Peter's feet? And Peter gets angry. Don't do this to me. He's like, no, 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 I have to do this. So what Jesus starts at this table would then go on to spread literally around the world and all the way to 2021 in Green Lake, Wisconsin. Praise God. And nowhere do you find the word of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, more profoundly than in the cross. Nothing is more evil ever than the betrayal and execution of God unjustly by the people he created. Yet nothing was used for a more profound good. Through the cross, people stayed alive. 
through the cross, nations are able to stream to the table of God and eat. And Jesus says, those who eat the bread that I serve on my table never die. And where is Jesus' table now? It's right there. So the church, brothers and sisters, is this. This is what we're about to do. God exalted Joseph to feed the hungry and to be a force of reconciliation and forgiveness in Egypt. God exalted his son to feed all the hungry and to be a source of reconciliation for the entire world. Jesus says, the bread that I give, I come to give for the life of the world. And Jesus exalts his church and his daughters and sons in the church to feed the hungry and to be forces of reconciliation to continue the ministry of Jesus. This is what we are about. This is where we are headed. And so Christ Church is this. That's our dream. That's our vision. We are the house where we want people to come home and not get what they expected. We want to be the place where people who are hungry and harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd are offered food that is free. And it has to be free. And it always will be free. Amen? We are the place where people find forgiveness and acceptance in a way that they never thought was possible. Where they're afraid that somebody's going to find out what they did, but when they do, they're still accepted because that's all of us. Amen? So this is Christ Church. Now for a final meditation, just as we come to this table and eat and drink. What about you? What about your table and your apartment? or in your home, or in your condo. In a way, it is this. You are on a journey here. And for any of us who thinks that God exalts us for fame, or glory, or to get what we want, or to be materially rich, or to be relationally rich, or whatever, we need that refined from us. But God is purifying us. He's proclaiming his mission over us for that, so that people can eat, around us, and we can be a force of reconciliation in the world. And that's true about your table, both your actual table and the actual food that you can serve on it, and your metaphorical life table. Why is God exalting you in your life? When I say exalt, I mean, what's he raising you to do? I don't know the answer to that. But God uses us in unique ways. What about in your family? Every single one of our families is dysfunctional, so just get over it. If you're afraid that other people are going to find out that your family's messed up, man, you're in the wrong place because all of our families are messed up. How is God raising you up to set a feast in your family? We can do that as Christians because we've already been accepted to a table and we've been forgiven, and so we have more than enough to share, right? Who do you need to invite to your table to forgive? Who do you need to invite to your table to feed who you can see in your life and God has put in your life and you can tell is hungry? That could be actually hungry. could be a person who doesn't have food to eat. It could also be a person who's starving, but it's not for bread, it's for Jesus' bread. 
who do you need to invite to Jesus's table in the church so that they can eat? People come because they're invited, both to your home and to the church. And I love, as Esau says, as Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'm going to provide for your little ones. Esau says, I have more than enough, brother. Quit trying to give me all these gifts. Let me just bless you. That's our posture in the gospel. When we come and receive, we are able to turn around to others and forgive and say, oh, brother, sister, I have more than enough. Let me bless you. What you intended for evil, God meant for good, that many people might be alive as they are to this day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.